Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day here in the capital as once again we ensure we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on the programme today by Andrew Ebor. Andrew is a renowned international lawyer, strategic business advisor, producer, writer, presenter, magician, futurist and inspirational speaker. So it's fair to say a man of many professions. Andrew, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on today's programme. Scott, it's my absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me on. It's a real pleasure having you with us as well, Andrew. Um, The purpose of this discussion is, of course, to establish your take on leadership first and foremost. So if we begin by taking that word leader aside and considering that in a bit more detail, I'm interested to understand what that word actually means to you and how it resonates on the whole. Well, I think what's fascinating, Scott, is that so many people have defined a leader. And I think uh, John Quincy Adams was the one who put it. If, if your actions inspire others to dream more, learn more, do more and become more, you are a leader. I think he, he's absolutely right on that. Uh, and Steve Jobs, I mean, another brilliant leader um, and uh, produced a few good results in his time. I mean, he also talks about innovation, which is something which I'm certainly involved with. Uh, and basically, he talks about innovation distinguishes between a leader and a follower. So both of those, I think, are absolutely right. It's, it's lead, let's not follow, um, but make sure that you inspire as you do it. And we talk about, of course, the need for leaders to inspire. And therefore, when we go through sort of times of difficulty, such as the COVID-19 situation that we're going through, for example, then I suppose the natural reaction is to look up to our leaders for that direction, reassurance and inspiration when we do need it. But when you are sort of the leader at the top of the tree in a time of difficulty, where is it that you tend to look to for that inspiration as and when you require it? Well, I think the inspiration and what is clear is that communication is, uh, is how you inspire. And what's become really apparent during this is that those who lack the ability to communicate well are, are those who've really come a cropper. So I think having clear communication about the messages that people need to listen to, the, the advice that has to be followed, that is where uh, the real sort of skills lie. And never at, uh, at any other time in history has clear communication been more important. I would agree with that, certainly, Andrew. And um, if we think about sort of your personal leadership style, if you will, for a moment, how would you describe that? Well, I basically I always look uh, to inspire, but also to basically inspire by example. I think it's no good just telling people this is what you do uh, and then fail to do it yourself. And the history has been populated with a lot of people, with very recent examples, which I won't necessarily go into because they're so well known, where basically people tell you to do something and do something completely different. Uh, that is uh, the uh, the way of uh, folly, uh, and that is the way where people get their downfall. So I think having a very, very clear message, following that clear message, and leading by example are certainly the ways uh, that people can inspire. Mm. It's important, isn't it, to lead by example, as you say there, but also not just be constantly over one's shoulder telling them what to do, because I think it's also important to just give them that little bit of independence to try things for themselves, maybe suffer one or two setbacks along the way and then embrace that as a learning opportunity, because ultimately that is how we develop as people and um, as a good um, and effective leaders in our profession, isn't it? Oh, no, absolutely. And people always shine a spotlight on success. Uh, but very rarely I shine a spotlight on the failure that led to that success. And uh, what I did, I set up uh, something called the Optus TV Failure Awards, 
where basically we embrace failure in all of its many different uh, guises. Uh, and I say that basically if, mother, if necessity is the mother of invention, then failure is the father of success. And uh, I've recently uh, well, I've been commissioned to write many publications, speak around the world on the power of failure. Uh, and a book is uh, now available called Andrew Ewan's Book of Failure mm. in all good bookshops and uh, some bad ones as well. So <laughs> embracing failure, recognizing that people should try, because if you don't try, uh, then you have uh, nothing. You basically just stand still. So absolutely, let's look at that sort of side. Let's look at trying new things. And that's one of the things that's happened during this pandemic, is people being forced to look at things differently, to try new things. And we've had a lot of success coming out as a result. Mm. How has it been for you at Octopus TV and also um, at your other businesses and trying to navigate this pandemic? Because I think you're absolutely right. It is an unprecedented challenge and therefore it's been a learning curve for all of us. Well, I think what's unprecedented is the use of the word unprecedented. I've never in so many media reports that people said this is unprecedented. The reality is I think both good and obviously lots of bad have come as a result of it. And my thoughts and prayers go to those who have suffered directly. It is appalling in any circumstances. Mm. And the difficulty with the media, media is that you get desensitized sometimes by statistics lies, damn lies and statistics, when actually there are lives, individual lives and families that lie behind that. The key, I think, is that we've reinvented ourselves. We started to take uh, what we realized that we took for granted beforehand are now becoming uh, things that we cherish. I mean, simple things like having a hug with, uh, uh, with, with family or friends or relatives who you haven't been able to see, just seeing people and sitting down and having a conversation face to face, all of those things which we maybe now look at in a new light. What I've also found is that, um, and it was encapsulated, if you like, by Banksy and it's a fantastic artwork, is we now have new heroes. And the, the artwork to which I was referring is Banksy shows a picture of a child, uh, and in a bucket they have um, all the usual superheroes. There's Spider-Man and Batman and, uh, and, and Robin and Wonder Woman. Um, but the child is playing with uh, an NHS nurse, which they held high mm. as their, their favorite superhero. So we do our value now, those everyday superheroes. And, and if, if you like, it's also epitomized by people like uh, now Sir Thomas More, um, who, as you know, he was the chap who walked up and down his garden. He wanted to do that 100 times before his 100th birthday um, with a, a very modest target, first of all, I think of £1,000. In the end, he raised more than £33 million pounds, uh, for the NHS, but also raised a lot of awareness. And I think it's people like him who shows that people everywhere can do something to make a difference. Exactly right. And um, what this sort of lockdown and social distancing period has also brought back into the uh, the national discussion is the importance of uh, mental health and well-being um, as well. And when it comes to uh, leadership, um, Andrew, just how crucial is that, both in terms of looking after your own and also that of those around you? Well, mental health is absolutely key. And uh, as you know, I'm a, a passionate advocate for mental health. Mm. I established something called Canned Love. It's okay not to be okay. Well, I've got the great and the good around the world have basically spoken about their own troubles. Uh, several years ago, there was a lot of stigma attached to mental health, uh, whereas uh, if you had a physical illness or you broke your leg, people would come and sign your cast and make a joke about it or whatever. It's okay. But people had a sort of shame, if you like, about a mental illness. What I want us to do is to be the generation that talks about mental illness so that the next general generation uh, loses the stigma. And I think that is the real, real key. So mental illness, absolutely, it, it, it affects everybody being locked down, having those feelings of isolation, having the feelings of depression. It affects everybody in different ways. 
and being able to talk about it and realizing that you're not alone. Uh, if you prick me, do I not bleed? If, uh, <laughs> if you mm. tickle me, do I not laugh? You know, you work on those sort of principles. We are the same. Um, and the good, the great, and the, uh, of the of the world, they all have the same challenges. And realizing that is actually quite empowering for people. Mm. I think you're very right in what you're saying there, Andrew. And um, I also think as well that there are some features of this lockdown period that could well end up affecting the way that we operate in this country permanently, not just in terms of that renewed focus on mental health and well-being, but also our working practices as well. The fact that more and more people could be sort of working uh, remotely on a um, sort of personal basis uh, for a certain number of days um, a week. Um, can you see some wholesale changes in that side of things as well? Oh, I- Absolutely not. Not only that, but I've been commissioned and uh, to do a major event in Cannes, which which I do uh, every well a number of times each year. Where I'm hosting a panel or looking particularly at the TV and film industry, where people are changing their practices. Where we have managed to do a lot of things remotely. We're doing different remote practices uh, to embrace technology as a result of it. Also within this time, uh, with, with my own company, with Octopus TV, I've been conducting interviews around the world uh, with everybody from every walk of life to see how they have coped uh, during lockdown and the various changes that they have made to their industry. And you find that certain things, we do a lot obviously with um, people, but with performers um, and, and so on and so forth, where people normally performing to, in front of thousands of people are having to effectively be in, do their performances in their living room. But they are reinventing themselves. They're finding new ways to communicate. They're finding new audiences. And as a result of that, it's really, really exciting uh, because they're also finding new skills. And on the show, on Octopus TV, we did, we did it um, uh, remotely. I conducted it via one of the online platforms. And I would talk to everybody from the Queen's Chaplain about uh, religion and how you've got a new audience around the world. I talked to chess masters who will give people lessons. I spoke to, spoke to uh, major chefs who basically have been furloughed, but would come and teach their, their Valerie Eborn's perfect pavlova recipe or mm. things like that. So all of this actually gives you a new audience. And I think rather than just being locked down and saying, okay, we're confined to our job here, you now have a, a global audience, uh, which people are getting used to. The other thing I think from the education point of view is that we have access to some of the world's biggest experts. And what I've done on the show is get those experts on talking about their area of expertise. And so things like e-learning and sitting in front of uh, a computer for your classes um, is really the way of the future. And places like uh, South Korea have been doing this with e-learning for many, many years. In fact, I was over invited over for a special conference on e-learning about six years ago. And we set up a company called Octopus Career um, as a result of it, looking at that whole education market and, and the, the strategy behind that and the future of, uh, of entertainment, education and various other industries as a result. And thinking of the future, I think it's only right, Andrew, that we do talk about that just before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme today, because we are going to be grappling with this new normal that everybody's talking about and adjusting to that in the coming months. So over the course of the next year, what is next for you for Octopus TV and your other ventures? And what do you really hope to achieve as we get to grips with these new challenges? Well, the great thing is, as I say, is that during this time, I've had over 500 interviews, uh, which I've been uh, conducting uh, on behalf of Octopus TV with everybody from every possible walk of life. Uh, Those are uh, continuing. Uh, We're talking to traditional broadcasters about taking those forward. Uh, A lot of the lessons that have been learned, the tech that has come to the forefront and been trialed in a very interesting way as a result of it, we're helping uh, companies develop that a bit further. Um, heavily involved with AI, uh, artificial intelligence, but also with holograms and interactive experiences. 
again, those have been forced, um, if you like, to shine a spotlight on those sort of side. So actually, the positive to come out of this is that people are being tried to try new technology. We're flattening the learning curve and showing people it's not so scary out there. We can embrace these technological uh, advances in order to get us to a much, much better place a lot quicker. So what we're doing is effectively, as I say, taking the 500 plus interviews, we're continuing that, making sure that that happens with every possible um, practice area around the world, talking to major broadcasters about that but also encouraging people to try new things, whether it's in terms of uh, enhancements for their own sort of personal development or it's in terms of getting new skill bases or even new ways of approaching their own professions. Any and all of that, um, that, that is what we're doing. And it's actually a really, really exciting time. It certainly sounds uh, the case, um, Andrew. And, you know, given how informative it's been having you sort of discuss uh, these prospects with us today, I think it would be fantastic to have you back on the show in the uh, the coming months just to see how things are getting on. And we can discuss at that point just exactly what shape this new normal is really taking as well. Uh, we love it. And not only can we discuss what shape, we will actually be one of the shapers. Mm. Uh, and I think that is what's key, going back to your point about being a it's not we're not just a passenger on this, but we are actually driving some of these innovations uh, and with people's help. And if they do want to uh, be part of that process, then, then get in touch. You can get in touch with me at Andrew Eborn at OptimusTV.com. We can get people on the show if they'd like to be on the show. We can reverse the role, Scott. You can come on uh, mm. the Andrew Eborn show on Optimus TV and I'll talk more about you and your work and the great stuff that you're doing. Because um, it gives people, as you say, we peek beneath the kimono of so many different professions. It's really, really fascinating. It certainly is. And that's an opportunity I would most certainly uh, relish, Andrew, uh, for sure. It's been a real pleasure having you uh, join us on um, our programme uh, today, of course. And most importantly, until we do touch base again, please do take care and stay safe with all still going on as well. And you as well, Scott, a real pleasure. And do say my very best to David Blunkett, who I had the, the joy of having a business with uh, a number of years ago. So uh, very fond of David and uh, we, we've had uh, lots of good laughs together. Absolutely. I will certainly pass on those best wishes. David Blunkett, um, as um, many listening uh, to this may well know, of course, is a prominent former Labour MP and Secretary of State and is today an active member of the House of Lords and also chairman of our organisation, the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Um, On today's programme, I was speaking to Andrew Eborn and coming up next uh, today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. Um, During his professional career, in fact, so Jeff scored over 200 league goals for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City. But most notably, he remains the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in a FIFA World Cup final following his treble in England's 4-2 victory over West Germany at the Old Wembley 54 long years ago. I hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan relished the opportunity to speak with Sir Jeff. And all of that is, of course, coming up next. Uh, we're now joined, uh, though, by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final, Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, thank you very much for coming on today. Uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, and perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times. But when you got out for a duck playing for Essex, uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? <laughs> well, of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Oh, there, there are one or two people who are very familiar um, uh, who do Google me realise that I did uh, score nothing for Essex. Uh, for my only game for Essex first team when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool, a place called uh, uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool. 
many, many years ago, 1962, I think that was. So I didn't, and, um, yes, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be playing, <laughs> I guess, there one or two injuries. Um, but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time, mm. being stuck between the two sports. And I think uh, for those that uh, don't know, there's a there's a, another world that might exist where um, Sir Jeff Hurst was a, a first class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer. But um, whether it's business or cricket or or football, obviously the importance of leadership it can't be understated, no matter what form that comes in. When you were at West Ham, uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes. Was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was simply a, a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at the football. And uh, the, the quite always mentioned when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and, and the manager over many, many, many years. He and He's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over years, I guess. He would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with. He'd worked with. So you're very fortunate. I think you, you think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and a great coach as we had in Ron Greenwood. And of course, a great manager in South Ramsey. So to come across people like that of that calibre can have a huge influence on your your career, of course, and, and then your life. And that's that's quite purely the case. Absolutely. And in those early days um, at West Ham, uh, with with a manager like like uh, Ron uh, there, it's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with your other players and of course they become your friends who did you look at to at the time uh, when to inspire confidence in yourself was it more was it Peters I think probably well I was very fortunate to play with the calibre of the players I did again mm. again extremely fortunate to play with you know, the captain um, of England and West Ham and Martin Peters who was a fantastic player and some, as far as Martin's concerned I think sometimes he didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved and what a wonderful player he was. In terms of inspiring confidence, I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me, I guess, would be the captain, Bob Noor. Although he was only uh, about eight months older than me, he graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier. He played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more looked upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy with the same age group as me. And I looked at how he how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved, and how he played. And so he he would say, I would also say he was a big influence on me. One thing I would say about leadership, uh, what I do, I do understand clearly all walks of life. Leadership is at the top, is absolutely vital for a, a, for a business football team in any walk of life to be successful and it's quite evident I was in the motor trade for a long time as well selling car warranties to car dealerships and you could almost tell when you walked into the business uh, in a, many of the car dealerships you could almost tell from the moment you walked in by initial reaction people came and welcomed you that the business was well run or conversely not well run at all and so I understand the, the, the value and quality of leadership. 
and that's why I'm very fortunate to be involved in my career in those early days with two two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Alf Ramsey. Absolutely, and um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that, but obviously... Uh, after uh, at West Ham, your uh, plan came to the attention of uh, South Ramsey. Now, there's a man I'm sure when you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge. When it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? Well, one thing, especially when I say about Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who had on me um, as a person. Um, naturally it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you it can have a, a great impact on your, <laughs> your career and of course your life but yep. in that era I was involved for six or seven years he it was quite clear who was the boss he was quite very very strict probably at a time maybe overly strict but at a time you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now but he was the most powerful man I came across and very few people and he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out who he didn't want to be who didn't want to be part of a group part of a team it is important that if you've got a group of people and that's in any walk of life they're all singing off the same hymn suit and you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in the organisation, one thing I have learned and I've taken on in my life, my family, you've got somebody in a group that doesn't want to be part of it, you, you get them out. And Alf, I think, was was quite ruthless of that in his, in his staff. And I think that's one, thing I, one of the most serious things I think I've learned over a long period of time. And is there, do you think... Uh... A, a specific moment, I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, if you could uh, perhaps pick right now, that did show those uh, qualities in uh, Sir Alf so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly, um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team, or certainly in the squad, and surprising they were not. There was no necessary reason for it, but looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of a group. Um, so that that's that for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing um, in it only a few games before. I was I was playing and I played with Jimmy Greaves in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final. And it looked at that stage as if I was going to be playing in, in the team but uh, in a couple of friendly games more friendly games before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway I think in Denmark mm. I didn't I played two of the four games and I probably didn't quite replicate my my form that I'd been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England and he, he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, Uruguay he started off with Jimmy Green and Roger Allen. So I, I had an impact of thinking I at that stage I, like I was going to play and didn't start because of just a lack of form. I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position. And somewhat fortuitously, I only got back into it because of a, a nasty gash to shin um, on Jimmy Glee's leg. And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, 
whilst it's important to have that someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? Oh, not for me personally, no. I I think, and I don't, uh, not for me, not for a second. I think Mm. I was just happy to be, be involved in the squad initially. Uh, not at all. I didn't. You're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really. Looking back out, mm. so I never really felt. People talk about pressure a lot, and it's there. And people, players talk about. It, people talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessary to feel any great pressure pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important to say about Alf Ramsey, the people he, he left behind that were left in the squad after he moved one or two players out, the squad were uh, a, a bunch of very hard-nosed, professional, uh, top-quality people. And that was, again, the leadership that Al showed. He, he got people in together that were very, very strong personally. Um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had. We were very, I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals. Uh, we had some great players, but overall, they were great hard-nosed professional players. Um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with, you know, over the years. And Jeff, I've got to ask, and I'm I'm not making this up. I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not you realised there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. Well, I, I did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows. In fact, starting this week over the next uh, two or three months. And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about 20 minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And the, the, there's, I won't mention both. There's too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, the other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> but the, the, the other ridiculous question I get asked, did I realise there were people on the pitch? And of course, I jokingly say, "Yes, I was just about to to shoot to score the goal, and I looked round, put my foot on the ball, and looked round for a little while, and said, oh dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch.' So that's uh, I've had been asked that once at one of the theatre shows. <laughs> so I joke and make a joke about that, and saying, "Yes, I put my foot on the ball and waited, but just had a, look, had a glance round, you know." Maybe it does prove there are things that, such as stupid questions, really. Um, oh, yeah, there are. There certainly are. I've got another one which I won't bore you too. It won't be too long to tell you. Uh, I was in a Jersey or Channel Line, Jersey or Jersey, two or three mm. years ago, and most stu- stupid, irrelevant questions, absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever, which uh, was absolutely. But I can use that now because it, it is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe another time then. But we. Um, uh, well, you want me, I, I can tell you if you want. You want. You got time. I can tell, I tell you if you want. Jeff, go on. Go. On. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay. So I was uh, doing a, a at a dinner in the you know, Channel Lines, three or four hundred people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honor. Mm-hmm. And this occasion, I was speaking for about twenty minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening, and there was usual football questions. And then all of a sudden, I had a somebody at the back who who asked a question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give mm. this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? So the chap had the mic and he said, 
when a turtle loses its shell, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> what, what a question. What a question. Uh, well, I think that would be in, definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. Is, uh, well, uh, and we... That you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to put up with <laughs> well, things no, like that. Just, but then again, I found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well. So it did, uh, um, it did make then again, laugh if you, that put, day. if you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. Um, <laughs> but there, there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff, I think um, you, you were a young man when see this happened, when you must have realised that people, teammates, began looking at you for leadership. Um, is that something that occurred to you or did you just realise that by, by quick, one way or the other, people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration? Well, possibly. That's never really struck me until you've actually mentioned it now, quite frankly. That's a new, a new question. Mm. Does anybody look up to me? I'm sure perhaps... Uh, there are there are people who pay you compliments of, of uh, fans of, of West Ham and uh, of Stoke, and of course in, uh, England fans who um, I, I think probably uh, it would be very immodest of me to to suggest I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration. Um, well, you, but, you don't but, have to, but I will. Uh, um, well, it, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it, uh, perhaps. Um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you, and um, uh, maybe uh, it has a, a helpful effect. Uh, but I do think you, you, how you behave and set examples on and off the pitch is people must realise that that's, that has an influence. How you react and behave mm. to, to situations on and off the field surely probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team latterly. Um, yeah. And and with that, looking at um, uh, football today, uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you as someone with um, those qualities that you could identify in a in a natural leader? Um, well, a player, current players, you mean? Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really? Well, I think. Some of the outstanding. I think the, the best example about a, a leader and at the moment is is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. He has been absolutely fantastic to uh, acquire the players and get them to their attitude is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but there's more than just being good players in football. It's have a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence these unbelievable results. There are, you know, and the great players not always succeed as, as individuals, or probably even uh, certainly as a team if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that that comes through the leadership. That's not just luck. Absolutely, that's, that's absolute leadership. He'd be the best example, of course, in, in football terms today. Uh, easily, easily. And of course, but going back not that long ago, Alex Ferguson is just absolutely. Mm. You've got to take him as the first example. But Klopp's only done this for a period of time, a short period of time. But if you look at the 25, 26, 27 years that Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United, 
and subsequently since he's gone, how they they are not doing so well. He's the best example of management I've seen. We've seen, we've probably ever seen, and I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again. It's absolutely astonishing, astonishing. And do you think? Could you imagine uh, Sir Alf or even Ron Greenwood managing teams today? Yes, I think so. I think yes, no, mm. no question at all. I think they, uh, Ron Greenwood, yeah, the answer, straightforward answer is yes. Um, they, <laughs> the straightforward answer is yes. I can elaborate as much as you want, but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes. Uh, and with um, and I know uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so, but um, I'm conscious of the um, time. Um, looking um, back uh, through your um, playing career, perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England. Who was it uh, that struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership but uh, companionship and and level headedness that you think that have stuck with you all these years later? Well, I think we were very fortunate, and I wouldn't take any one player out. I think looking at so that, many. yeah, so many, and that's why we we're successful because we had so many. Um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned uh, throughout the team, I think that that was outstanding, and uh, uh, and it's an opportunity to talk about uh, all of them in, in that breath. And there was nobody. And going back from an earlier earlier question for me, that um, all hard nosed professionals, good good teammates, mm. good socially, and that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days. Every year, uh, up until about five years ago, of course, with, with the uh, sadly dwindling yes. numbers, we we still got on. Our wives got on with, all together. All those years later, it didn't just finish after '66. That reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. the, um, uh, getting on with each other, lasted for, for a long, long, long time. And I wouldn't and- when it, when you put those those questions and how you categorise those. I would pick every one of the 11 players um, who you put in that category that were like that. There was nobody else. They were all outstanding. And I think that was a big part. I can't stress how big a part that was. And I've said that many, many times for the success of the team. We have some great players. We have some great players, of course. But without the attitude (laughs) alongside that, going back to an earlier question, we wouldn't have been as uh, ultimately, ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, you, the 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 whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts. But with it, yes, the word the word is team. the word is t- the word is team. Absolutely, and I always use the word team when I talk. Sometimes uh, together, everyone achieves more, and that that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. And uh, lastly, Jeff, uh, looking if if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life. What would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant uh, that you can't go without in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single mind and single mind and dedication, dedication to the job. Um, thinking about that 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 role, that job in leadership all the time. It's a huge part of your life. But it, you, I don't think you can switch off. When you're in, in business at the top level or sport at the top level, 
you may, you know, have a, way, have a couple of weeks holiday, but I'm even sure if, if these top managers and lead, leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm, I'm sure there's not, uh, there's, they will not switch off for, for two weeks um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organisation. And I think that's, you're completely focused. You're always thinking about uh, things, thinking about improvements, and it's just dedication and uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful. Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to nice to have a talk about this and just go over this, go over the past and just uh, refresh my mem- my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.